Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, sometimes you get to the end of these letters and it just kind of seems like a bunch of random stuff all thrown together. But I, I do think there is kind of an overarching theme that goes through this section. It's basically this. Christianity is not just a philosophy. It's a radical way of life which we must live. And in particular, Christ claims authority over all of life. Uh, the Dutch prime minister and theologian, uh, Pastor Abraham Kuyper, talked about this when he said that there is not a square inch of earth over which Christ does not say mine. There is no sacred secular dichotomy where you have certain things that are like Christian-y things, and then there's other things that are kind of outside the realm of religion. No Immanuel Kant kind of world here. The Bible says all of this stuff matters, and the gospel, what God has done, connects dots to all of it. So that pervades this whole section. The other thing that pervades this whole section is that the Bible never just gives us bare commands. The Bible never just tells us what to do. They're always anchored in who God is and what he's done. In particular, in this section, what he has given us. So that's the kind of two lessons that pervade this whole section and I think help it all hold together. Christianity is not just a philosophy, it's a radical way of life. Christ has authority over all of life, that's sort of the corollary there. And then the Bible never just gives us bare commands, but always anchors them in who God is and what he's done. So I, I hope as we read this, you'll see how these two points run all through this section of Hebrews. Um, well, I'm going to re start reading chapter 13, verse 1. Follow along, if you will. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp 
bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. We pray. Lord, we do thank you for this letter. May we never take for granted that you are so gracious that you would condescend to speak truth to us and that you would give us your holy word. Help us now to receive it for what it is and to worship you with reverence and awe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, uh, I think what you see through here is the idea that Christianity has a certain way of life dots that connect. And the Bible never gives us bare commands. Let me go through and show you this. I think these are actually really important things because I think a lot of people just think of uh, maybe ways they've been raised as you just got to do this and don't do that, right? But the Bible is always concerned that you understand that relationship with God is first and foremost that. It's a relationship. It's not just about breaking the rules. It's about rupturing the relationship, and I think you see that as you go through here. But also, God has made his people into a new community, and that should be evident from the way we live. We should be able to demonstrate to the watching world that there is another way to live, that what Jesus has done has set us free from having to be so focused on ourselves, so worried about doing all the right things so that we make sure God would love us. As Tim Keller has written, based on a, a, a saying of C.S. Lewis, Christianity is not supposed to make us think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. Why? Because as chapter 1 said, after he made purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God the Father. That means that the work of earning the smile of God and securing it forever has been finished. That's why it says he sat down. Therefore, we don't need to be obsessed as God's children. If you have put your faith in Christ and you are his child, then the issue of what he thinks about you is settled. 
And that then allows you to put your focus elsewhere. I think so many people, they grow up in churches and their will is all about trying to make sure they make the grade and that they do the right things. And Christianity is supposed to set you free from that. That's settled. Now go out and love one another. So here you see, we're to love as a family. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. What does that mean? Well, you can deduce from that. God has made us to be a family. We are to be who we are. We're to live as we are. Becoming a Christian constitutes us part of a new family structure. And the way of the Christian life is to reflect who God has made us to be. But notice, one of the things that this means is that God can tell you who you should love and how. See, families are very different than friends. You don't pick them, right? And, and this is a really important lesson for us to understand. Ultimately, God gets to tell you who you are to love and how, whether you like it or not. Now, I'm not talking about people that have abused you and taken advantage. Like, they're, they're, you know, understand, this isn't the only thing the Bible says about relationships. That's why we're gonna do a whole semester on it next semester. But the point is, you don't choose your family. And when you come in to this relationship with God, you come into a family, not just you and Jesus, okay? So we are to love like that. If you think that love is just this spontaneous feeling, you can't make sense of this. Because how could God tell you who to love and how? It shows us that love must be not a mere emotion, and maybe we need to rethink what love is about, but more on that next semester. Um, second, he says, we're to entertain strangers, but again, look at why. Because we ourselves have been welcomed. What is the gospel? What is the book of Hebrews about, but how we have been welcomed, given access to come boldly into the Holy of Holies. Because we have been so welcomed, we are to extend that welcome to others, even strangers. And you never know, he says, some have even entertained angels. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could be angelic beatings, but the word is also a general word that means messengers. Maybe one of the points is whether they are angelic beings or just people that God may have put in your path to teach you something right? So don't limit what God can do to the kind of handful of friends you already have. Maybe God wants you to think about other people that could possibly be a blessing, that you could be a blessing too. So we're not just to kind of, I, I, I do think sometimes, especially college is so hard, you know, I, I mean, I've got kids that have all been through this, where it's like you're just trying to find a couple people so that on Friday night you got somebody to do something with, right? And then maybe you find that that initial group of people you thought were gonna be your people, they're not your people, and then you gotta get up the energy to go do it again, and it's just hard, right? And, and so, so it's only natural that you would think, man, once I find just a couple people, then I'm good. You know, this is exhausting. But unfortunately, well, or fortunately, depending on if you have the right perspective or not, God says don't ever limit yourself to the friends that you already have. 
God wants to build a community that's more than just who you know and love right now. I know that that's, you know, if you're an introvert like me, that's a little threatening, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> um, but but I, I do think it also means this. I mean, welcoming strangers. So you got to understand, you know, in the ancient world, like you were totally dependent on hospitality. And the Roman world, it was actually safe to travel. But it wasn't so easy to just find like the Holiday Inn or whatever, or the Motel 6, right? One of the ways that Christianity spread was through this kind of hospitality. You knew if you were a Christian and you went to a town that the Christians would take you in. It was key to understanding how Christianity became such a force in the ancient world. But notice what it means. It means that God gets to tell you how to spend your time and your money. Because welcoming strangers interrupts things, doesn't it? We have to be hospitable people, whether you feel like you're gifted at it or not. We have to use what we've been given for the good of others. Next, look at verse 3. Now, verse 3 is actually a bigger deal than you may realize. He says, continue to remember those in prison. Most likely, he's not just talking about all prisoners, though the Bible certainly speaks about the importance of doing that. But here, it's probably a reference to those fellow believers who are in prison. And the reason this is maybe a bigger deal than you might think is that these Christians are told here, you are to identify with those who are suffering in prison. Why? You are to suffer as if you were with them. And you're to to care for those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Does that sound like something else you've heard in the Bible? Maybe you've read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talks about how the body of Christ is just that, a body. And if one member is suffering, the whole body is suffering. That's the theology behind this here. He's not just saying, you should go help out the people in prison because it would be kind to do. He says, no, because they're part of your body. They're part of your body. It's not optional. You know, if your toe is hurting, you deal with it, right? So we're we're identify. And again, you know, in our day, that might mean inconvenience, ministering to people in prison, right? But for the Hebrews, the people this is written to, it means publicly identifying yourself to the authorities as you're part of their family, okay? And you understand, like, in the ancient world, nobody fed you if you were in prison. If you didn't have people feeding you and taking care of you, helping you, prison was a really bad place to be, okay? So this was absolutely vital, but it means, it means that even personal safety and comfort sometimes are to be sacrificed if we would follow the way of Jesus, right? So this raises the question, can God command us to risk our lives? Yes. Now that's a radical thing. I think if you had to pick, like, what is the highest value that you've been raised with? It's safety at all costs. And that's not the highest value of of the Bible. I remember one time I I went back to Berkeley. I won't even say the whole thing this time. (laughs) 
So when I was in seminary, when I was at Berkeley, me and some friends, we started the Christian Fellowship there in the late 80s. They, they didn't actually allow any organizations to meet. They wanted us to focus on practicing all the time, real healthy environment. But finally, uh, my senior year, they said, well, we can let you have some clubs. So, so the Christian Fellowship was one of the clubs, me and some buddies, we started. And um, I decided when I was in seminary about seven, eight, maybe 10 years later, that it might be fun to go back and, oh, to Boston for spring break. I never had any money. I didn't have much money when I was in seminary, but I really didn't have very much money when I was in college. So I was like, I'm gonna take spring break, uh, still single at the time, and I'm gonna go eat at restaurants I could never afford. I'm gonna go see a Celtics game. I'm gonna see a Red Sox game. It's gonna be fun. And I went and I did all that. I went to Symphony Hall and heard the Boston Symphony. And, and I reached out to the Christian Fellowship, didn't know who was running it those days. So I was like, I'd like to come, come speak to you guys. And they were like, sure, great. So I remember talking to them. Uh, I don't even remember what I talked about, but I remember this one girl asked me a question afterwards about whether it was appropriate for her to do Christian music or secular music. And I was like, oh, you know, I lived in the, the days here in Nashville when literally the Gospel Music Association had a formula for how many Jesuses per minute you had to have for a song to be considered a Christian song. So that was like a debate that was very alive when I was around playing in a Christian rock band, working on Christian records. Anyway, I, 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 as, she, as she starts to answer, you know, uh, describe this question, um, I'm like, oh, I got this. You know, I got this. Fortunately, I didn't speak before she finished because she said, because here's what you need to understand, like where I'm from and where I plan to go back after college, if someone would convert to Christianity from my testimony, I can be put to death. I was like, oh, that's a very different question than whether or not can you do Christian music or secular music, right? Uh, a missionary friend of mine likes to say, there are no closed countries if you're open to martyrdom. And, and it just puts a different spin on it. As Tertullian, one of the early church fathers said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And it's been like that in every generation. Can God command us to risk our lives? Are you even open to that possibility? Well, if you think that's hard, look at the next one, verse four. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. What does this mean? It means we're to live as sexual beings, sexual people in a distinctive way because God really cares about marital faithfulness. God created marriage, guys, to teach us about his love. He didn't look down and be like, oh, look at this quaint custom these human beings are, are you know, apt to do. Maybe I could work with that. No, the Bible says he created marriage to teach us about his covenant love, his faithful love, right? And what's amazing is how countercultural this was to the Romans. The Romans, you know, we, we have records of them saying things like this. I don't understand these early Christians. They're promiscuous with their money and chaste with their bodies, which was the exact opposite of how people in the Roman culture lived. They were promiscuous with their bodies, but they wouldn't give their money to anybody. Don't understand these Christians. They're just the opposite. But the reason is because God created marriage to teach us about his love. It's why spiritual adultery is a really big deal. Ultimately, it means that we're to deal with our sexuality and how we deal with our sexuality is actually not just a private matter. It's a matter for the Christian community. I'm, I, I think one of the best ways, for instance, to think about the Ten Commandments 
is to think of them as the conditions for community to flourish. You see, God took Israel out of Egypt. As a matter of fact, the preface to the Ten Commandments, and I'm one of these who thinks you should never post the commandments in your front yard or your courthouse unless you include the preface. Because if you don't include the preface, you misunderstand the whole thing. The preface says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery. Therefore, live free, and here's how to do it. You're to be a community where sexuality is honored, where the truth means something where worship of God is pure and unadulterated. These are the conditions for community to flourish. And they're still the conditions under which community flourish. What kind of community can flourish when sexuality is mistreated and misused? Or when truth doesn't matter, right? That's what it's talking about here. Then it goes on. We're to keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what we have. Why? Now, this is really fascinating. You look at verse 6. I don't know, or the end of verse 5. I don't know if this, if, if you were just reading in the Bible, let's say maybe you read the Bible every day, what Christians call doing a quiet time, which is a great practice to do, commend it. But let's say one day you'd read this verse, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And you try and think, huh, what does that mean for my life today? Do you think this is the conclusion you would come to? Well, if God will never leave me or forsake me, then I should never really fall into the love of money. No, I, I think most of us would say, God will never leave me or forsake me, therefore I should feel better about today. You know? But the dots that connect here, I think, are really fascinating. But the reason is because money regularly in the Bible stands as a possible God substitute. This is why Jesus says that you can't worship both God and mammon. Why? Because money is one of those things that you tend to look to for the things that only God can provide, hope, peace, and security. And perhaps there's a reference here to maybe a strategy that the Hebrew Christians were thinking about pursuing to try to cover their bets if the persecution would get worse. You remember we saw last week, they've already suffered, some of them, the loss of their property. They haven't yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, but maybe they better put some money in the bank to be able to, to, be able to endure the persecution. And he says, don't focus on the love of money. Remember who God is and what he's said and what he's committed to. I think that's fascinating, all of the implications. What it means is that when we run after other things like money or people that we think if only they liked us and if only they um, you know, were in our life, everything would be great, it means that when we run after those other things, it's because we have forgotten or don't really believe what God has said. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And I don't know if you always connect the dots. Whenever we break one of the Ten Commandments, Martin Luther said this, I think it's a profound thought. Whenever we break any one of the Ten Commandments, we first break the first commandment. We first imagine God to be somebody less than he is. And it justifies in our mind taking control of our lives. Idolatry is always connected to imagining God to be less than he really is. Going all the way back to the garden. 
Adam and Eve, remember, they, 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 they had in their mind this idea that he was overly restrictive. God said, don't eat of this tree. But what did, they, what did they say when the serpent talked to them? They said, God said we're not to touch it. They'd already in their mind started to think that God is more restrictive than he really is. That he's holding out the good stuff from us. That he's unreasonable. And that's what we always think, which then justifies, well, I better take care of me because I can't trust God to. So you see, sometimes you sort of see like a counterintuitive way of understanding how to fight against sin and temptation. It, here, it's not just set your willpower against the love of money. It's really dig into the implications of, I will never leave you or forsake you. How would that change your life if you really believed it? We're to, we're to focus on God's promises because that's what faith feeds on. If you want to know how to grow as a Christian, one of the most important things you can do is feed on the promises of God. Learn them, study them, think out the implications of them for your life. And then understand this, that this promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. Yes, God said it, but he shouted it at the cross because the cross amplifies this promise a hundred thousand fold. I will never leave you or forsake you takes on astonishing power when you remember that that is the heart of what Jesus was doing on the cross. All right. All right. Second point. We're to remember what we've been given so that we could flourish as a Christian community. We've been given leaders who went before us. Probably a reference here maybe to leaders who are no longer with them. Maybe they've already died. But one of the things you see here is there is kind of a built-in historical bent to Christianity. What actually happened in the past matters. Part of the reason it matters is because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We can actually learn from the way people have understood and learned about God and had a relationship with him in the past. One of the reasons we sing these old hymns is because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And sometimes the people that wrestled with God and wrote these hymns, we can learn something from that. I, I remember when I was your age, um, finding an essay by C.S. Lewis called On the Reading of Old Books. And he advises for every new book you read, read two old books. Because one of the best ways to see past your cultural assumptions is to see what other people thought, which may be very different than you. Now you can go cross-cultural, that's a good helpful way to do it, but you can also go back in time. Christians 200 years ago thought very differently about suffering, for instance. But you won't know that the way you think is as time-bound as it is unless you have a foil that comes up against you and you're like, whoa, wow, Christians used to think that? I wonder who's right. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean they are right and you're wrong, but you won't even ask the question unless you're interacting with people who are different than you and think differently than you, right? Uh, I remember, you know, twice in my life I've sat down with Tim Keller and had just a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him. And the first time, you know, just out of the blue, I didn't even ask him a question. He knew I did college ministry because his son was also an RUF campus minister and been a student at Vanderbilt. And um, so he knew I did RUF and he said, you know, he just, he just kind of was like looking up, just kind of thinking to himself out loud. He goes, you know, if I was doing college ministry today, 
I would want to make sure my students were reading some of the spiritual classics like the Puritans and John Newton and, and some of these great people, Archibald Alexander, who I'm going to quote from you here in just a little bit. Um, people, these students today need to get in touch with some of that deep, rich theology. Or you can take Dr. Guthrie's Christian Doctrine class. That'd be a good thing to do too. Yeah, because yeah, it's great. And that's one of the things that you realize is, whoa, there's all these rich resources of Christians who've went before us. Um, so we've been given leaders who went before us. We've been given a never-changing Savior. We've been given truth that is unchanging. And I love this, real food which nourishes. Uh, this is a fascinating verse. Um, it says, verse 9, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching, because it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. What's the, what's, how do you apply that today? I think of it this way. There are all kinds of people who will convince you that you need something more than the gospel. And there's always somebody coming to Belmont with some plan to take the campus by storm and bring something that we don't already have that you need. The gospel is what you need. Don't be carried away by thinking you need something else, some ceremonial food, some latest religious uh, device or experience. You have what you need in the gospel. It's good for your hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by all kinds of strange teachings. But it's very easy for Christians to be carried away by these strange teachings because they all so often feel dissatisfied with their Christian life. And they think if they just did this, or they just got this, or they got a little more of this, or they did that thing, that then everything would be better. It's good for our hearts to be nourished by grace. And I put a quote here. I'm not going to read it because time is running short. But um, it, it's a really helpful quote, I think, on the way true Christians are nurtured by grace and not by being told what to do. And the reason so many Christians are puny in their faith is because they're basically trying to focus on all the things they need to do instead of what Jesus has done for them. You can read that later. All right. Well, then that brings us to this last thing. This is actually a really hard thing, I think, to talk about in our day and age. This idea about going to Jesus outside the city gate and taking on the reproach that he took. I was talking to Wendy, my wife, about this today. Like, people in our day and age talk about shame all the time. It, it's everywhere in the worship songs that we sing, right? It's like the, 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 the main thing that people talk about, right? There's hardly any talk in modern worship songs, I know this because I did a week-long study of this up at Calvin College years ago with Dr. Guthrie and, and a few other professors. They're, 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 the idea that to say, Lord, I've sinned against you, doesn't appear in the top 250 most popular CCLI reported worship songs. Shame is everywhere, right? So how then can Hebrews say that we are to go take on the shame that Jesus bears? Because that's what it's saying here. See, we talk about shame in a way like there's no possible positive way that you can think of it. And, and I want to be sensitive here, but, but I, I want you to understand the Bible speaks about shame in a different way than we tend to in our kind of pop psychology culture today. We're to bear the disgrace he bore. But let me just lead into that with a couple points. Christ was actually crucified outside the city gate. In these days, Jerusalem had a gate, and Golgotha, the place of the skull where he was crucified, was outside. It was basically a trash dump, 
Okay? And, and, and the Jews understood that to be similar to the tabernacle, where when the sin of the, of the, of the community was put on the scapegoat, the scapegoat was exiled from the community. And, and it's the same kind of image that sin defiles you such that you have to be cut off from the community. And that is an image of shame. Jesus bears this and he bears it, but here's what he does. It's, <laughs> this is amazing. Look at, look at this here. It says that he goes to this place, verse 12, Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. That's a crazy idea. Because where you, the reason you go outside of the gate is because you're defiled and the community can't be around you and you can't be around them. But Jesus is so holy that he actually transforms the place of shame into a place of cleansing. Is that remarkable? That's remarkable. But the reason that it happens, the way that it happens, is not by you just telling yourself that you're good enough, but by looking to your advocate who transforms your place of shame into a place of cleansing. And, and that's the image. This is what is, is going on here. Jesus is identifying when the world, with the world in its shame and unholiness. He comes to us on unholy ground, as it were, and he cleanses his people and draws near to those who can't come to him because they're ceremonially unclean, and he goes to them, right? But then he says, you who have now been cleansed are to go out there to him and bear the disgrace he bore. What does that look like? Well, guys, it means this. We follow a crucified God. And, and there's nothing, there's nothing um, commendable about that in the eyes of the world. And, and I wonder if you were invited to Jesus you were invited to come bear the shame that he bore. Or if you were invited to come have a better life. Even the name Christian began as a term of derision. Do you know that? We've got some Methodists in here too, I know. Began as a term of derision. Some of you like the Puritans. It began as a term of derision. None of those people took those terms on themselves until after their enemies had charged him with that, and then they said, you're right. I, I, I think of like Martin Luther when he says, you know, when the devil comes to you and says you're a miserable piece of crap, don't argue with the devil. Say, devil, yeah, it's true. It's actually worse than you know, but go take it up with Jesus, my advocate, because he died in my place. And that changes everything. You, I, I mean, what, what, here's, here's what I wanted to get to, is Dan Allender has this, this great book. He's a great uh, Christian counselor. This book, Cry of the Soul, I commend to you. But I wanted to share, as we close here, an excerpt about the redemptive power of shame. And I've realized this will be a stretch. Now, I put it really small on the outline, but I, you, you also have a, a bigger version. And I'm hoping you can follow me here, because I think this is a profound thought. Shame, he's arguing, comes ultimately from having your idols exposed. He uses this example. He's like, let's say, you know, you get together on a date and you're sitting over there at Bongo Java and you've got your coffee and you're trying to be cool and you take a sip and it just dribbles all down your shirt. Like, you're gonna be horrified, but, but think about it. Is that actually a sin? It's not a sin, but you feel like it is because why? 
because you have just had your idol exposed. What idol? The idol that you can keep it together and look cool and impressive all the time. That's not, it's not possible. Most of the time, you live in the illusion that it is. Sometimes God is good enough to expose that that actually doesn't work. And then what are you going to do? And here's what he says. When shame, which comes from seeing the foolishness of your idols exposed, this is Isaiah 44, just as the idols are empty and of power, which is the essence of shame, to not have what you need, to be sort of seen as vulnerable and needy, the idol worshipers become like the things that they worship. And so the shame, he's saying, is ultimately rooted in the foolishness of our idols exposed. And what we need to do is learn how to have that turn into redemptive shame by, by this. This is what I'm going to read for you. See, see if this resonates with you. Shame arises when we feel deficient, yes. But far more, we feel deficient and ugly when the God we covertly and at times unconsciously worship lets us down and reveals the foolishness of our idolatrous trust. When I worship the idol of looking good or being bright or attaining power, I have put my hope in a God that has no power to rescue and redeem. That's not a problem until I need to be saved. Once I need help after spilling coffee, speaking poorly, the God I created sits silently. In its inactivity, it mocks my cry for help. Idolatry is sneaky worship. It is worship of the self, but it doesn't look that way at first. It appears more like a poor self-image. It looks like an insecurity that necessitates always looking good or never making mistakes or determination to be successful. Eventually, God in his kindness pierces the delusion. This side of glory, we will never be free of shame. In fact, scripture indicates that those who are free from shame are the most arrogant and God-hating. And there's a lot of verses about that. As with other difficult emotions, we can't simply resolve shame and heal it, but we can hear it. This process occurs as we counter the self-absorption of shame with redemptive sorrow. As my heart grieves over the damage wrought by my endless pursuit of idols, I will grow free of the stinging self-consciousness of shame. Brokenness is the antidote to shame. The power of shame is never crushed by affirming our goodness or dignity. Instead, it is melted in sorrow when we are overwhelmed by what it exposes in our hearts. Repentant sorrow comes as we pursue shame beyond its horizontal cause, the human interactions which often provoke it. And we're not making light of that. We're just saying that's not the whole story. We have to go beyond the horizontal cause and taste the tragic consequences of its idolatrous foundation, which is foolish trust in my strength to stay in control. I think about, some of you maybe are old enough to remember Stuart Smalley on uh, Saturday Night Live. He was this recurring character where he basically, you know, was this really super insecure but sweet, tender guy, but super insecure. And every day he had to do this television show and, and he would just kind of psych himself up. He'd look in the mirror and he'd say, you know, Stuart, you're good enough. You're smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like you. Right. And then he would, you know, say the wrong thing and just completely dissolve. 
You know, it never had power. It never stuck. Because you can't say it to yourself. You have to hear it from another. You were created to bask in the approval of another. That's what God made you for. And you can't take care of that yourself because you don't have the power to speak those kinds of words to yourself. You have to hear them from the one who made you. The redemptive sorrow, he says, turns away from self to look for grace and an advocate. Because we see that we ourselves are insufficient and unable to save ourselves. Hope in our advocate opens hearts to confidence, and confidence stops the fearful flight of shame. Gratitude softens the self-hatred of shame. A grateful heart has no need to engage in self-destruction through violent self-hatred. Self-hatred tries to annihilate what it assumes is the cause of shame, the self. Worship acknowledges that the cause of shame, idolatry, has been forgiven. Why would we turn on ourselves in vicious hatred when God's goodness reigns over us like a glorious rainbow? God is a God of irony. He delights in disrupting the sinful confidence of man. He chose for his son to be born in shame, live his life in shame, and then die in the most shameful manner. Shame is evil's greatest weapon against God, but God takes the weapon of evil and uses it to mock and then destroy evil. This is Colossians 2, 13 through 15, which you should look at. We are to shame the world by reveling in the beauty of weakness. Here is paradoxical ground where God's strength is revealed. We are to rejoice in foolishness, the cross, because through it, God's wisdom shames the wise. For most people, shame is an enemy. For God's people, it becomes a friend that exposes our idolatry, draws us to the wonder of the cross, and serves as a weapon to mock evil. Once shame has lost its sting, we are freer to forsake the safety of our walled cities and venture into the hope of another city, the city of God. Bearing disgrace and rejecting safety for the hope of what will one day be ours energizes praise, promotes good and pleases God. God loves paradox. He bears shame to make a spectacle of evil on the cross. He invites us to bear disgrace in order to befuddle a world terrified of shame. Now I wanted to give you that whole quote because that's worth pondering and thinking about. It's also worth getting together and talking about if you want, or I, I know any of the interns would love to talk about that more too. We have a city that is to come. We have a solid hope. Therefore, we can say to the world, we don't believe your lies anymore. I have an advocate who says that I'm covered in robes of perfect beauty. I don't care what I feel. You know this great verse in 1 John? When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. The key to living the Christian life is to believe God even over what your own heart says to you. And that's the key to perseverance. That's really what Hebrews is about. Let's pray together and then we're going to close with a, a wonderful song about what God has done.